Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, to learn more about Polish-Jewish history and how our guest, Dr. Leon Komides, survived the Nazi occupation of Poland as a Jewish child. Hi, this is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Last year at this time, we started to plan an issue of Connecticut Explored that commemorated the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. In our fall 2020 issue, we brought you stories of ordinary Connecticuts who did extraordinary things, acts that were brave, selfless, and heroic. One of the stories that affected me the most was by Dr. Leon Komides. Born in Poland in about 1935 to Rabbi Kalman Kamides and his wife, Leon was hidden at age seven in an orphanage of the Greek Catholic monastery in order to save him from almost certain extermination at the hands of the Nazis. I think about how young a child is at seven. You're really tiny. Leon had to pretend to be a Christian, speak Ukrainian, answer to a new name, and know the Greek Catholic faith and prayers. He was liberated at age 10 and went on to become a founding chair of pediatric cardiology at Hartford Hospital and the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. As an adult, he was able to return to Poland and retrace his family's history, published in the book Strangers in Many Lands. In this episode, a lecture by Dr. Komides, he highlights aspects of Polish and Polish-Jewish history with illustrations on how members of his own family were affected by them. The lecture was sponsored by the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, Voices of Hope, and Emanuel Synagogue. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth, for that introduction. I'm uh, somewhat overwhelmed by the uh, interest expressed in this uh, lecture. As you heard, there were 250 people who registered for it, and I only hope and pray that I can fulfill uh, your expectations. I happened to mention to my brother who lives in Australia that I was going to uh, give a lecture on uh, history and some aspects of the history of Poland. And in order to try to reassure me, he told me that he was quite certain that I would be at least as successful as the history I would relate. So in this session, I what I decided to do was to cover some selective aspects of uh, Polish history and particularly with an emphasis on Polish Jewish history and how these events interacted uh, with my family. I was stimulated to pick this topic, uh, not only because it's close to my heart, but also because uh, I have over the years found a great deal of misunderstanding and misinformation about Polish Jewish history uh, that I would uh, hope I could um, have an impact on. It might surprise you to know that from 1569, when Poland and Lithuania united to form one monarchy, until the country's dissolution in the third quarter of the 18th century, Uh, Poland was the largest country uh, in Europe. It might also surprise you to know that Poland became a constitutional monarchy in 1791, the first country in Europe, and after the United States, the second in the world to have a constitution, uh, which was not a democratic constitution, but had a clear division between executive, legislative, and judicial powers in which serfdom was essentially abolished. Uh, Jews have lived in Poland for over a thousand years. The first Jews were probably merchants, some of whom were non-Ashkenazim, who crossed the Black Sea uh, from the Byzantine Empire. And I suspect it cannot prove that my father's ancestors were part of that migration because of our last name. The ending Edes, which is the ending of our name, is a Greek patronymic uh, common in the region of Pontus on the Black Sea in Greek Asia Minor, meaning the son of. For example, Maimonides is the son of Maimon, 
Nachmonides is the son of Nachman. So Hamidus basically means the son of Hama. My father's first name was Kalman Kalonimus, which appears in every other generation in the family and is also Greek. And Kalonimus means good or beautiful, which is Kalo, and Nimus is name, so beautiful or good name, which is roughly equivalent to the Baal Shem Tov, namely a person who knows how to use and manipulate God's name for good in the world. Another hint is that the name Hamidus is a surname, as a surname is mentioned already in the 17th century, and that's about 200 years before last names were adopted by Ashkenazim. However, the first major migration of Jews to Poland came from German countries during and following the persecutions resulting from the various crusades. Then there were further migrations from Western and Central Europe, followed by persecutions with the Black Plague and the Thirty Years' War. Polish kings welcomed the Jewish refugees and they found here a very tolerant country that was willing to give them political as well as religious autonomy. And some of the earliest Polish coins contained a Hebrew writing. In Hebrew, Poland is called Polin, which we are told comes from two Hebrew words, po, meaning here, lin, we will rest. In other words, here Jews found a resting place from persecutions. Jews in Poland were allowed their own language, Yiddish, self-government, and their own judicial system. This autonomy eventually proved to be a mixed blessing. On the one hand, it encouraged the development of a rich Jewish civilization, but on the other, it separated Jews from the co-patriots and led to misunderstandings and friction. In the United States, we think of Jews as a religion, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. In contrast, in much of Eastern Europe, being Jewish was considered a nationality. And this was even until recently on the Russian passport. This was gradually changing even in Poland in the 19th and especially the 20th century and the movement of Jews to the cities. An increasing number of Jews became culturally and linguistically assimilated, and for them being Jewish became a more of a religion, while being Polish was the nationality. But in contrast to other European countries, Jews in Poland were never confined to a certain district or street. They were never required to wear certain uh, clothing, Poland has no Euderia as in Spain, no Judengasse as in Germany, or ghetto as in Italy or France. Poland is also one of the few countries that never expelled its Jews. Jews were indeed expelled from some towns and from some districts, and that's how Kazimierz became the Jewish suburb of Krakow. But compared to the rest of Europe, Jews felt themselves safe. And as a result, the Jewish population grew rapidly to become the largest concentration of Jews in the world. At one time in the late 19th century, 80% of Jews in the world lived in Poland. As you can see here, the population starts to increase gradually a little before the year 1000 increases more as persecutions occur in Western Europe, and then goes up very rapidly with two little blips when persecutions in 1648 and again in 1768 occur, but then continues to rise to its peak in the late 19th century, then begins to go down as Jews emigrate uh, to particularly to the United States and then, of course, there is a tremendous downward swing uh, during the Second World War and the Shoah. In addition to this numerical growth, there was also a rich cultural growth. 
Poland was the birthplace of the most famous yeshivot, beginning with one established by Moses Isselus, known as the Remu in the 16th century. Here is the famous yeshiva of Volozhin, founded in 1802. The last yeshiva to be founded was established in 1930, and this was Yeshivat Chachmei Lublin, which was established by Rabbi Meir Shapiro, who is well remembered as the originator of the Daf Yomi, the idea of learning a page of Talmud every day, which has become so popular today. As I said, the dedication occurred in 1930 and of this very beautiful building, and this building, in fact, served as a uh, hospital uh, during the German occupation. It became a hotel uh, after liberation. It was known as the Ilan Hotel, which I found find somewhat ironic. It's called the Ilan Hotel in Poland. And now it is a building of the medical school. But inside, they have still maintained uh, the synagogue and some other uh, areas showing that this was once a yeshiva. This is a photograph of my father. My father is the one in the top hat here. As a 28-year-old rabbi in Katowice, he was part of the dignitaries who came to the 1930 dedication of the yeshivat uh, Chachme um, uh, Lublin. In addition to many yeshivot, uh, Poland also was one of the countries in which the methodology for studying the Talmud, which we still use today, um, was developed. Poland was the birthplace of Hasidism, the most fertile ground for the development of Zionism, the birthplace of Yiddish and Hebrew literature, and the home of many of Israel's founders and early leaders. And for better or for worse, you might be interested to know that the Israeli political system is patterned after that in Poland. In Poland, Jews found a place as the emerging middle class between peasants and the nobility. They helped develop the economy and built the cities. Eventually, Jews constituted about 30% of most Polish cities. Here you have a map of the interwar years, and each of the circles uh, describes the number of total number of inhabitants within the city. This one, for instance, is Warsaw, the largest city. And the black area is the percentage of Jews. And you can see in many cities, it's about 30%, 30%, 45%. There are occasional cities like Wutsk, which has 50%. And there are other cities like my hometown of Katowice, which had a very small percentage of the population as being, um, uh, as being uh, uh, Jewish. In the Middle Ages, Jew Jews became extremely valuable and trusted employees of the powerful nobles of the Schlachter. They collected taxes and tolls for them and ran their businesses. And with the decline of the power of the nobility, Jews became leaders in the economic endeavors they previously managed, namely the production and sale of lumber, grain, and alcohol. At one time, practically all inns and pubs in Poland were owned or managed by Jews. Together with their families, they lived in clusters on the noble estates. In time, these became small towns or stetlach. Their involvement as tax collectors in the sale of alcohol of course, won them the enmity of the peasants who were their customers, as well as the church who felt that they were corrupting the peasantry. The role of the Jews on behalf of the nobles also complicates our understanding of actions against them. Let me give you one example of this. Take, for example, the well-known name of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the Ukrainian Cossack leader. In Ukrainian memory, Khmelnytsky is a hero who led an uprising in 1648 against their overlords, the Polish nobles. In fact, a few years ago, when I was invited to speak in Kiev, I was put up in a hotel named the Khmelnytsky Hotel, 
which was on Khmelnytsky Street with a big statue of Bogdan in front. In Jewish memory, on the other hand, the same events are called Gzerot Tachvitat, the massacres of 1648-49, and Khmelnytsky is remembered as the arch anti-Semitic murderer. Now, both views, the Ukrainian and the Jewish view, are absolutely correct. After all, if you're going to lead an uprising against the nobles, you would have to include and be especially vicious against the people who were carrying out the nobles' activities, which happened to be Jews. On the other hand, because of anti-Semitism, the attacks were most violent as they were carried out against the Jews. Internal weaknesses and external wars led to three partitions of Poland by the Russian, German, and Austrian empires beginning in 1772. And by the third partition in 1795, Poland ceased to exist as an independent country for 123 years. And here you can see the partitions. The, if you look at the brown, uh, various shades of brown, that's what Russia got. The green is what Austria got. And the blue is what Germany or Prussia got. And the various shades are the three partitions. So Austria, for instance, didn't get anything in the third partition, whereas the other two uh, uh, did. In fact, Russia took 60%, Prussia 20%, and Austria 18% of the former uh, Commonwealth. And here you have a cartoon of the partition uh, showing Catherine the Great of Russia and Joseph II of Austria and Frederick the Great of Prussia quarreling over the ter their territorial uh, seizures. Poland would not exist from 1795 as a country again until it gained independence as a result of the Versailles Conference that ended World War I in 1918. This loss of independence and the yearning for a land of their own had a profound and lasting influence on the Polish national psyche and even on the Polish language, feelings with which we Jews can easily identify. For example, the first words of the Polish national anthem till today are, quote, Poland has not yet been lost or has not yet disappeared as long as we are alive, unquote. In Polish, if you want to say you are going to Poland, you literally say, I'm going to the land, very much as we would say the Aritz, and we would understand where we are going. This loss of independence also meant that there was confusion in the minds of your ancestors who immigrated to the United States in the late 19th or early 20th century. Did they come from Poland, Austria, or Russia? Two people who came from the same little shtetl in Galicia, one will tell you he's from Austria, the other that she's from Poland. People coming from the Pale might say, might say they came from Russia, or they might say they came from Poland. During these 123 years, the law of the land and how Jews lived and were treated depended on which empire they were in. Their fate and even their lifestyle depended on the laws and customs of the empire ruling them. Here are the pictures of my great-grandparents, Leopold Altman, after whom I am named, and his wife, Charlotte. They were born and lived in Silesia, which is now the westernmost part of Poland. They settled in Katowice, which became my hometown, but look at them. They look uh, totally German. They were very pious Jews, but they dressed as Germans. They spoke German. They participated in German and were very proud of German culture. My grandmother, Marta, their daughter, was brought up on German literature and German language and took piano lessons, played piano very well. And when after the First World War, Poland was formed and this part of Silesia was given to Poland, 
All of their children, with the exception of this one, Bruno, left Poland to go to Germany because that was the culture they identified with. And this is something that we in the United States can very well uh, understand. Now, in contrast to this, look at my grandfather. Here's a photograph of my father, my grandfather, and this, I think, is my brother. At any rate, you can see they dressed differently than the population, surrounding population. They spoke a different language. They followed a different culture. They were different people than the surrounding uh, uh, people. My grandfather was extremely poor. He was a shochet. My father had to leave school in the fifth grade because of disruptions of the World War I. But his attachment to the Austrian intellectual climate, which was the empire this was in, was such that after the war, he managed to go to Vienna at the age of 18 and in 1920 and studied for and passed the matriculation examination and then enrolled at the University of Vienna as well as its rabbinical school. A to totally different cultural experience than was present in, in Germany. The largest number, almost 75% of all Polish Jews were acquired by the Russian Empire. And the area which they annexed from Poland became known as the Pale of Settlement. Until 1917, Russia did not allow Jews to live in Russia proper. So when you hear about a Russian Jew, that's a descendant of Jews who were part of Poland, of the part of Poland that Russia took, took over. The pale included what today is Belarus, Lithuania, Moldova, and much of Ukraine. At its height, it had a population of 5 million Jews, which represented 40% of world Jewry. Most of the approximately one and a half million Jews who immigrated to the United States during the latter part of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries, as a result of the intense anti-Semitism of the Tsar's Russia came from this area, from the Pale. The Pale, of course, also included many Catholic Poles who yearned for an independent Poland and participated in several unsuccessful uprisings to gain it. There were some Jews who joined them. And one of these Jews was Beric Yoselewicz, who became a national, Polish national hero. And the Jewish day school in my hometown of Katowice was named in his memory. As you can see, both an Israeli and a Polish stamp were made in his, um, were made in his honor. But in general, the Jews of the Pale adapted to their new masters. They started speaking Russian. And after 1917, when they were allowed to do so, they moved to other areas of the Soviet Union and Ukraine. And that's where the population of Odessa and Moscow came from. This difference in the yearning for an independent Poland added to the hostility between the two religious groups. During the Soviet Jewish emigration of 1990s, it was their descendants who came to the United States and to Israel and were now known as Russian Jews. No part, as far as I know, of my immediate family lived in the Pale. When Poland was granted independence in 1918, 30% of its population consisted of minorities, including Jews, who constituted 10% of the population. The Ukrainians and Belarusians in Eastern Poland wanted independence from Polish rule, which they eventually achieved. There was sufficient concern about the safety of these minorities that Poland was forced to sign a treaty for the protection of minority rights, which they eventually abrogated. Now the interwar Polish attitude towards the Jews is best expressed by extreme poles of opposing views. On one extreme were the National Democrats known as Endencia or Endek Party under the leadership of Roman Domowski, 
which held that Jews were a foreign element that had to be isolated and removed from Poland. And Decia was especially disturbed by the prominent role that Jews played in Polish society. There were at least 10 Jewish political parties at various times in the same or Polish parliament. I told you Israel was patterned after Poland. 56% of the country's doctors, 43% of its teachers, 33% of its lawyers, and 22% of its journalists were Jews. Opposing them was Yusuf Piłsudski, who became an autocratic leader by a coup in 1926 and ruled until his death in 1935. Piłsudski was considered by Jews to be their protector. And when he died in May of 1935, in a eulogy, my father stated, quote, he is no longer in our midst. He who for so many years was our faithful protector and patron, a rock of nobility and justice, a source of hope and strength, an example of heroism and boundless patriotism, unquote. This tension was part of a larger philosophical debate, whether Poland, this new country now formed in 1918, was to be a multi-ethnic and multi-religious diverse country of one of or one of uniformity reserved for the ethnic Catholic Polish majority. Even during Piłsudski's rule, anti-Semitic ideas of Endetsia and its youth organization permeated the political process. This anti-Semitism was strengthened by the pernicious influences of the Catholic Church and Hitler's anti-Jewish policies next door, and was intensified particularly after Piłsudski's death in 1935. Examples of organized anti-Jewish activities in Poland included an economic boycott of Jewish businesses that started in 1936 with the backing of the Catholic Church and the Prime Minister and segregation of Jewish students at universities into so-called ghetto benches. In a letter my father noted he was fearful of going out at night and said of Poland that it is, in the biblical words, quote, a country that devours its inhabitants, unquote. The situation was aggravated by economic depression that started in 1929 and the simultaneously increasing popularity of ready-made clothing and shoes sold in department stores, which deprived thousands of Jewish artisans and small businessmen of their livelihood. By 1937, antisemitism was part of the Antetia or Endek party platform and a suggestion was seriously discussed to expel Jews to Madagascar. Common wisdom is that World War II started when the Germans attacked Poland on September 1st, 1939. But I want to remind you that Poland was simultaneously attacked by two countries, the Germans from the West and the Soviet Union from the East. Despite that, Poland held out for almost three weeks, much longer than most European countries. Germany and the Soviets had secretly agreed to divide Poland, and my family left in, 19, in the summer of 1939, and our object was to go to Lvov, where my paternal grandparents uh, lived. Unknown to us at the time was that the line which divided Poland into two with Germany taking the west and the Soviet Union, the East, by that line, we found ourselves behind the line and therefore under Soviet um, occupation. The Soviets were attacked by the Germans uh, on June 22, 1941, and the, and the Soviets retreated. The relationship between Poles and Jews during German occupation was complex. The Germans considered the Poles only one step above the Jews. Jews were destined for extermination and Poles for slavery. It should be remembered that two to three million non-Jewish Polish civilians lost their lives during the occupation and that the first prisoners in Auschwitz were non-Jewish Poles. 
There is no question that many Poles were indifferent to Jewish suffering. Some took advantage of it, and some, as documented in Gross's book, Neighbors, were participants. But it should also be remembered that despite the fact that aiding Jews was punishable by death, many Poles helped Jews. The largest number, about 4,500, righteous among the nations named by Yad Vashem are from Poland. In contrast to Ukrainians and Lithuanians, Poles were not concentration camp guards. And in contrast to other Western nations, there was no segment of the Polish government that cooperated with Germany. The Polish underground was the only one in Europe with a special division, Zagota, whose sole purpose was to rescue and help Jews. And the first and most accurate information about the fate of Polish Jewry and the first-hand report on conditions in Auschwitz was brought to the West by a member of that underground, Jan Karski. Unfortunately, he could not convince the Western leaders, including FDR. By 1944, when we were liberated by the Soviets, three million Polish Jews had perished in the Shoah, and fewer than one half of 1% of Jewish children survived. I survived because I was hidden, as you heard, as a Greek Catholic Ukrainian in a monastery of the Studite order in the village of Univ, today Ukraine. I took this photograph of the beautiful monastery in the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains when I visited there with my wife and my son in 2007. This photograph was taken probably in 1944 of a group of children in the, in the uh, monastery. And the gentleman here is Brother Daniel Timchina. Uh, he has since, he unfortunately ended up in the Soviet Gulag, as many priests did. He was also a poet, and he has been recognized by Yad Vashem as a righteous among the nations. Here I am in my Ukrainian shirt, uh, looking rather sullen. Now, what's interesting is that this young man and this young man, the three of us, are the only Jews in this grouping. And we all dressed and spoke and pretended that we were Ukrainian Greek Catholics. So let me tell you very briefly, this is Daniel Adam Rothfeld, because I knew him by a different name. And he, uh, his family was all killed, only his sister survived, and she didn't know he was there. He came to the monastery when he was three years old. So he had almost no memory of his, uh, of, his, of his family. After liberation, no one knew he was there, so he was left there. And when the Soviet Union outlawed this particular church and turned the monastery into an insane asylum for women, uh, they sent him to a different orphanage where he found conditions to be particularly poor. And he, uh, now to 12 years of age, uh, ran away from there and walked back to this village, to Univ, which was the only place he ever knew as, as home. He was again sent to a different orphanage in Krakow, where he grew up and under better conditions, and his talents were recognized. He went to the University of Warsaw, became a, an expert in international relations, became a diplomat. Uh, he did a lot of diplomatic activities in the international sphere, uh, and then became the foreign minister of Poland. He um, is known today, he's very highly regarded in Poland as one of their experts on international relations. The little boy over here, his name is Oded Amarant, and he has also an interesting history because uh, he, his family made um, uh, made Aliyah before the war uh, to Palestine. In the summer of 1939, his parents brought him to visit the grandparents in Poland. Parents went back because they had to go to work 
And they left him with the grandparents with the idea that the grandparents would send him back in September. And of course the war broke out and his uncle was able to get him into this uh, monastery. Um, <clears throat> he eventually uh, reunited uh, with, uh, with his uh, family uh, in, uh, in uh, Israel. Unbeknownst to us, uh, there was another little boy, his mother and an aunt were hidden in the attic of, uh, uh, of uh, our schoolmasters, of our schoolmaster. They remained in the attic during the entire war. Uh, his, he and his mother eventually came to the United States. Um, he became a professor of chemistry at Cornell University. His name is Roald Hoffman. Uh, and he um, won the 1984 Nobel Prize in chemistry. Um, the, he also is a well-known playwright and, and uh, a published, uh, a published uh, uh, poet. I just wanted to show you in uh, just about a year ago, uh, we all went to uh, Israel for our granddaughter's wedding and on the way back, we made a stop in, uh, in Poland, in Warsaw, and we had a nice reunion uh, with uh, uh, Daniel Adam Rothfeld and his wife, uh, Ola. And as you can see, you recognize Rabbi Small and my son and Jean and Debbie. And we had a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening. This was the church. I took this in 2007, but it hasn't changed. This was the church in which we said mass uh, every uh, Sunday uh, morning. The Greek Catholic Church, uh, which is also called the Unia Church, was established by the Treaty of Brest in 1596 as a union between a segment of the Orthodox or Eastern churches in Rome. This new church was allowed to maintain its Eastern traditions, such as the prayer language and form, and uh, as well as allowing priests to marry. And in turn, they recognized the Pope as the head of the church. So they sort of tried to form a marriage between the Roman and the Eastern churches. The person most responsible for, for saving my life uh, was the Archbishop of the church, whose name was Andrei Shiptitsky. He had the title of Metropolitan, which is the highest title you can get. And he has been an archbishop uh, since the year 1900. He was already an elderly man, was in a wheelchair when I met him. I met him when my father brought me in 1942 to the St. George's Cathedral uh, in um, uh, Lvov. Archbishop uh, Sheptitsky uh, was responsible for saving somewhere around 150 Jews, uh, mainly uh, children. Uh, he was well known as a friend of the Jews and he uh, was unique in having a Hebrew teacher throughout his career uh, and uh, studied in order to study Bible in its original uh, tongue. The survival of Jewish adults is estimated at about 10 to 15%, with 100,000 in Poland and the remainder Jews deported by the Soviet Union to the various Soviet republics during their first occupation. Locally in the community of Lvov, we had 119,000 uh, Jews in 1941, which swelled to 150,000 with the refugees who came, uh, such as uh, we. By November 1942, there were 29,000 Jews remaining. By April 1943, there were 8,000 Jews remaining. And by July 1944, there were 823 and almost no uh, children. When I was preparing closer to home, when I was preparing my book, Strangers in Many Lands, I wanted to devote a page to the names of all family members mentioned in the book who I was sure uh, uh, perished during the Shoah. And this is the list. I was most fortunate after leaving the monastery uh, to get a new home with a wonderful lady by the name of Tala Wasserman, 
whom I subsequently called Mother Tola, who had survived in hiding and had lost her entire family. And this photograph was taken on Riverside Drive after we came to the United States. In February 1945 at Yalta, Roosevelt, who was already very sick, Churchill and Stalin agreed that the eastern part of Poland would, approximating the part that Russia had taken when they divided Poland, this part of Poland, would remain as part of the Soviet Union. And as in compensation, Poland was given this segment of Western, uh, uh, of Eastern Germany, and this became the Western part of, uh, of uh, Poland. So I, in Lvov, here is Lvov, I found myself in Lvov in the, in now as part of the Soviet Union. So I went to school and I wanted to very uh, show you um, uh, with great pride my uh, report card from 1945. You see it's written in Russian. I took Ukrainian, I took Russian language, I took Polish language in addition to math, geography, etc. And I just want you to see that I got all fives, which is the highest mark one can get. Uh, the, the marks go from one to five, five being the highest. And here on the other side is my name, Chamaidesa Leona, and it's my name and the patronymic Kalmanovicha. Uh, so that's my Russian um, uh, report card. I, after school, I worked in a, a cosmetics store, and um, one day I was uh, selling cosmetics in the store, and two Russian officers came in. They took a liking to me, started talking to me, and uh, they turned to me and said, would you go out for a drink with us? And I said, why not? So I went out with a drink with them. And uh, when I went out for a drink, uh, we went to a nearby hotel by the name of George. And uh, I had my first taste of beer. And on the way back, they took me back to the store. Uh, we went by the beautiful opera house in Lvov, now called Lvov. And they, there was a street photographer and they said, let's take three photographs so we each have a memory of today. So this is my memory of that day. I have no idea what happened to these uh, people. As I showed you before, when the, when the, uh, when the exchange took place, there were uh, 1.8 million Poles. Well, that was part of the agreement. 1.8 million Poles could leave this area, which was now the Soviet Union, and go to Poland. At the same time, there were 3.5 million Germans who had to leave their homes and go into Germany. So a massive displacement of, uh, of, uh, of people. And we were fortunate in being able to be one of those 1.8 million that went into Poland. We arrived in the city of Bitum at the end of 1945 and found such extreme anti-Semitism that I had to enroll in a Polish school under the name of Leslav Kusharetsky, a Roman Catholic, because it was dangerous to be a Jew and almost as dangerous to be a Ukrainian Catholic. I joined my family in England in 1946 and came to the United States in 1949. Of necessity, this has been a historical overview, a bird's eye view. And obviously, uh, many, many uh, important details are missing. Most importantly, I did not discuss any aspect, because it would have made this much too long, uh, of uh, the relationship between Poland and its tiny uh, remnant of the Jewish community that remained in Poland after the war. Unfortunately, this relationship between Poland and its remnant of a tiny Jewish community does not reflect well on Poland. And with that, I'll pause and I'll be glad to take up any questions that anyone has. Thank you so much, Leanne. Um, I'm sure we're all just taking this in, um, but if anyone has any questions or comments, please put them in the chat to me and I will convey, I will, I read them out to Leon. We thought that would be the best way to handle such a large 
One question we got so far, Leon, is was the 20th century Polish anti-Semitism a recent deviation from early acceptance of Jews? Um, I, that's the impression that I have. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, again, when we say acceptance uh, in the early part, in the Middle Ages, for instance, uh, you have to differentiate the acceptance by the kings uh, who, uh, who protected the Jews because they found them to be useful, quite frankly. Yeah. The, the nobility, which protected the Jews because they found them to be useful. It does not mean that the church was friendly because it never was. And of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that neighbors were friendly, but Jews lived in their own little uh, corners. And as long as they had government protection, um, they were protected. So I think it's a little difficult to say, since this was not a democratic society, um, it's difficult to say that they were accepted by the, by the average people, mm. but they certainly were by the government. Yes. Gotcha. Thank you. That's, I think that's very helpful. Um, we had a couple of questions asking a little bit more about your family. What happened to your brother and parents? Um, how My, did you meet up with your family? Was it difficult to get to find your family when you got to England? Uh, a couple of questions like that. My, my, uh, first of all, my brother and I were the only children in our family. My brother is two and a half years older than I. Uh, and he was also placed in a Ukrainian environment. But unlike I, I was lucky enough to be in one place. He was in 12 different places. And each time people suspected that he might be Jewish, there was a rumor he had to be moved to a different place. So he had a very different experience than I did from that point of view. Um, after the war, after we came to England, when he was 16 years old, um, he decided to uh, make Aliyah and he went to Israel. Uh, he uh, was a member of the Mossad uh, after a while. And in 1956, he was sent out to Vienna to help bring out the Jews from Hungary, which he did. And while in Vienna, he decided that he had had enough of politics and he wanted to study math and physics. He went to the University of Vienna at night, uh, got a degree and then came to the United States, finished his studies, and then took a position um, in Australia as, um, as a professor of uh, physics. Uh, and he retired in Australia. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that he got interested, uh, he had a very eclectic interests. And one of the things he got interested in one time was how to uh, adapt um, Chinese writing, Mandarin writing uh, to the computer when the computer first came out. Uh -huh. And he actually developed a system which uh, made the first um, a word processor in Chinese. Is that right? Wow. And uh, I was invited in 1983 to go to China to lecture in medicine. And I called him to tell him I would be in China. And he said, oh, so will I. And he had been invited. So we both uh, were in Beijing. And one night we were sitting and had a nice drink. And I said to him how strange that here's a, a um, Polish, uh, Israeli, Australian Jew who's teaching the Chinese how to write Chinese. <laughs> Indeed. Well, now, uh, the, uh, my, uh, the, my, our entire family was unfortunately no, no one uh, other than my brother and I survived mm. of that side of the family who were in that area. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, uh, but my, maternal grandparents and uh, my, some of my aunts and uncles uh, who lived in Germany had been able to get out just before the war and ended up in England. Mm -hmm. and, and that's who I went to be with in 1946. I see, I see, great. Um, we had a question, I guess, as, um, can you talk a little bit about your personal feelings as a Jew 
about having to hide, to move, and to live under different regimes as you were growing up? Well, you have to understand that when I went into uh, hiding, uh, I was seven years old. Yeah. So my understanding of Judaism was very rudimentary. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was given a new name, Lev Kochaminsky. I was given a new religion. I was told never to mention at the cost of my life um, that I was a Jew or anything that could, or anything about my family. I wasn't allowed to speak. Uh, I wasn't allowed to ever take a bath or a shower in the view of anyone. I wasn't, when I went to the bathroom, I had to be careful to make sure no one was there. If I was sick, a doctor could never be called. Um, So there were many um, things that I had to get used to. Um, Fortunately, I must have the type of personality, or maybe I developed it, uh, which allowed me to go with the flow. Uh And and so I did. Uh, I did what I had to do. I don't think I had any particular feelings about it. Um, I became reacquainted with Judaism a long time afterwards. I was very fortunate in that uh, uh, Mother Tola, as I called her, uh, was Jewish, of course, but uh, she lost her entire family. But she was not a religious person. And I was very fortunate in that because I had uh, several years of no religion at all, which allowed me a transition which I think would have been much more difficult uh, had I gone from one extreme to the other. I don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Thank you. But I have have extremely warm feelings for the people who saved me. I have great respect for the Ukrainian Catholic Church. I have spoken um, to their children. I have gone to the camp where they uh, are being brought up, and I talk to them about uh, about my background and and so on, and um, and I owe them a great deal. So I'm very grateful to them. Thank you for listening. Find out more about Dr. Kermite's story in the Fall 2020 issue of Connecticut Explored online at ctexplore.org. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. To read more about Dr. Kamaidi's life and family, look for his book, Strangers in Many Lands, available on Amazon Books. For more information about Hartford's Jewish history, go to the website of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford. And for more about Connecticut's connection to the Holocaust, go to the website of Voices of Hope at ctvoicesofhope.org. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.